Uh, we're now at the point of our service where we are going to hear the scripture and the preaching of the word. We're going to have Becky read us uh, today's passage. Our reading today is from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink with you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Tara George, and I'm the Director of Family Discipleship here at Grace Toronto Church. And if you're just joining us, welcome. We've been in the sermon series on the book of Mark, and we now find ourselves in chapter 10 where Jesus speaks to his disciples about his role as God's appointed king. On well, one of the title songs from the movie The Lion King, Simba, the main character, who is just a lion cub at the time, imagines what it would be like to be the next king of Pride Rock. As the next heir to the throne, he envisions what life would look like on his rule, uh, what his kingdom would be like, and how he will be the greatest there is. He rides jubilantly on the backs of other animals, singing and leading a kingly procession. He sings this, I just can't wait to be king. The irony, of course, is not lost on the audience. His father, Mufasa, has just been giving him a speech about the circle of life, namely how a king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. Mufasa tells him soberly, one day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here. Simba listens but doesn't understand. He's far too enamored with his greatness and with the blessings that come. He doesn't realize that there is a cost. He sees enthronement will come at a heavy price. The current king, the good and wise and selfless king, must first die. 
Ironically, this Disney story is not so different from our gospel reading this morning. Here we find Jesus, one who is portrayed in the gospels as being the good, the wise, and the selfless king, going up to Jerusalem with his disciples. And as he goes and as he's walking on the road, he begins to tell them what is about to happen. He predicts his betrayal, his trial, his persecution, and his death. They listen to his words but don't understand. Like the would-be Lion King, they immediately begin vying for power, status, authority. You see, this is not a Disney fairy tale. Neither is this religious fiction. The author wants you to know that this is a snapshot of the human spirit. We all want a kingdom of our own choosing. We are all in a pursuit of personal greatness, sometimes and even often at the expense of others. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us about true greatness. He tells any who would follow him, any who wish to rule and reign with him into eternity, exactly what this greatness entails. And here we are invited to listen and do three things. First, to consider true greatness. Second, to desire true greatness. And third, to serve true greatness. Consider true greatness, desire true greatness, and serve true greatness. We'll begin with considering true greatness. We pick up our story in chapter 10 as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. The atmosphere on the road is tense, to say the least. And it's here as this motley crew of men begin walking together on the road that Jesus predicts his suffering and death a third time. See, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be condemned to death. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He's been warning them about this for some time, and yet they seem not to understand. Earlier in chapter 8, Jesus speaks about his death for the first time, and Peter, one of his closest disciples, actually rebukes him. You see, a Christ, a king who suffers, is not acceptable to Peter. This is not what a a great king does. Later in chapter 9, Jesus again speaks about his death, and it actually causes an argument to break out among the disciples. Their chief concern after hearing about the future demise of their Lord and Master is this. Which one of us do you think will be greatest in the kingdom? Repeatedly throughout the book, you get the sense that these disciples, they just don't get it. They're so enamored with the blessings and benefits of being part of God's kingdom that they're blind to any kind of cost. In fact, I think this is why Jesus warns in the the passage just before this one. He claims in verse 30 that all who deny themselves for his sake and the gospel will receive a hundred full blessings. A hundred full blessings. Yes, totally. Amen, you can hear the disciples say. Uh, Jesus interrupts them. With persecutions, he adds, and in the age to come, eternal life. What a sobering thought. Do you see what Jesus is doing Their vision of gospel greatness is faulty and it needs to be renewed. There's no greatness without suffering, no blessing without cost, and no plenty to be enjoyed without persecution. And I think it's into this context that we hear Jesus' third prediction about his suffering and death. He's going to practice what he's been teaching. He's about to live out this teaching in the most visceral way so his disciples will understand what it means to be truly great. I think it's possible that they do understand something. You know, we're told in this text that Jesus' teachings have left his disciples both afraid and amazed as they journeyed to Jerusalem. Scholars agree that the disciples probably expected a big showdown to happen when they arrived at the city. 
Here was King Jesus, the Christ, on his way to the religious and political capital of Israel. They imagined that Jesus was going to overthrow the existing powers, liberate Israel, bring about a period of great peace and prosperity to God's people. This is what the Christ was prophesied to do in the scriptures. And yet Jesus pauses on the road to explain to them what must happen. Yes, God's people will be freed. Yes, all authority and power will be subverted. Yes, peace and prosperity will reign. But it's not going to happen in the way that you think it will. They listen to Jesus' next words. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. It doesn't make any sense. Surely God's anointed king would be received and worshipped by the religious elite. Surely he will rule over all people, Jews and Gentiles. What's all this stuff about persecution and suffering and death? It's not new information that Jesus is giving them, but they don't understand They can't imagine that the Christ they're following has a completely different agenda. He's not exercising his power or kingship. He's not making himself out to be very great. Jesus is not at all what they were expecting. And I think if we're really honest, he's not much like what we were expecting either. You see, I think our culture teaches us to follow those who are deemed successful, influential, and impressive in the eyes of the world. Just think about some of the Euro models. Who are the people that you follow, the people that you think highly of, the people that you really care about what they say? Why do you do that? Is it not because you perceive them to be great? See, we expect big things from the people we follow. We follow them because we long to learn from, share in, and celebrate their greatness. In fact, isn't it the case that some of our biggest disappointments in life are often over the misdemeanors? and poor choices of those that we've deemed to be great. Maybe it's the respected political leader who is found to be embroiled in corruption, or a successful business mogul who is charged with corporate fraud, or even a star athlete who is found to be taking performance-inducing drugs. How about this? What about the celebrity pastor who is found guilty of sexual misconduct? You see, we all do this. We idolize leaders who seem incorruptible, fearless, effective, and ambitious. I know I have. They embody greatness in the eyes of the world, and it breaks us when we realize that they are not as we had imagined. And this is what's playing out in this passage before us. The Christ of this text looks nothing like what the disciples had imagined. They wanted power, and he promised persecution. They wanted a king, and he called himself a servant. Jesus is nothing like what you and I might imagine of greatness. But far from being crooked or immoral, Jesus is actually more beautiful and more worthy and more honorable than any of the other great figures you or I might imagine. He's a king who has had every power at his disposal and yet allows himself to suffer terribly. And if you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, you need to know that there's no other belief system in the history of the world that claims something as audacious as this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 writes this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You hear that? The concept of a crucified God was offensive and even foolish to its original audience. And I grant that it may seem that way to you too. 
What if it's true? All serious scholarship recognizes that Jesus was a real historical person who lived, ministered, and died in the first century in all the ways that Jesus claims in our passage today. Not only that, but the reality of the gospel was enough to turn these timid, scared disciples who were so disorderly into believers who would themselves gladly face horrific torture and death because they knew that they had not trusted in vain. My friends, in Jesus, we have a picture of a God who suffers. You may have misgivings about Jesus, but you are invited to hold him up against all the illusions of greatness and grandeur that you see around you. Wouldn't it be something if this were true? Because it is. This text calls us to consider true greatness, to listen well and to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the God King who suffers. Second, this passage also calls us to desire true greatness. The text shows us that right after Jesus predicts his suffering and death, his followers get into yet another argument. He has predicted his death three times now, and the result is almost, quite frankly, just as predictable. His words leave the disciples divided, envious, vying for positions of power and authority in the government of Jesus. And two of his inner circle, James and John, approach Jesus with a particular desire. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a veiled request. Now, we're not exactly sure what these men were thinking, but they seem to anticipate that they are on the cusp of some kind of spiritual or political revolution. If Jesus is about to be enthroned as king, what does that mean for us? Their conclusion is that we ought to fortify and strengthen our positions in the government of Jesus. It's funny, they seem to quite overestimate their importance. They ask, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now to sit at a king's right hand was an enormous privilege. It meant that you were basically second in command. And the person to your left was... basically the next most important person. This is not a small thing that they are asking for. And it's clear from the text that they they don't really understand what they are asking for. Jesus' response appears almost as veiled as their request. He asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This feels like cryptic language, but Jesus actually refers to both of these images in his ministry. In Luke 12, he says of his impending death, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Later in Matthew 26, we also hear Jesus praying to the Father as he considers his death and suffering. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, the cup and baptisms are symbols of the unique suffering and persecution that Jesus will undergo. Jesus has just given his disciples a lengthy description of what he is about to suffer, and in light of this, he effectively asked them, Have you not heard a word that I have said? Can you endure what I am about to endure? I find it so interesting. so interesting that each time Jesus speaks about his mission and the requirement of personal suffering, his disciples don't seem to want to hear a word of it. He's talking about suffering and they want to talk about glory. He's speaking of himself being humiliated and they are asking to be exalted. Are they even listening? Christians, are we listening? You see, they haven't been listening. 
They want blessings and benefits and prosperity and power. They've embraced the gospel as being good news, yes. But it's really only that. They need to desire differently. And I think so do we. I would imagine here that for most of us, the gospel was offered to us without significant cost. We heard a message, we prayed a prayer, we started going to church, reading the Bible, and we joined a small group. You felt blessed, but did you feel a cost? I don't know that I did. Overseas, we see people being killed for their faith, tortured, raped, imprisoned, separated from their families, toned for their homes and possessions. We hear of churches being bombed, Bibles being burned, pastors being butchered, all because they have trusted in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, there is a cost to following Jesus. And we don't like to talk about that often because it makes the gospel seem less desirable. But Jesus did not shy away from that one bit. The gospel calls you to worship a persecuted king, yes, but it also calls you to follow him through suffering. These disciples hastily claim, yes, we are able. And with these words, Jesus sternly warns them in each of us. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you also will be baptized. Those who follow Jesus will not undergo suffering in the same way that he did, but will undergo suffering and persecution of a similar kind. He will be treated in the same way as the one you follow. And if you're here and exploring the Christian faith, I need to tell you that following Jesus may be the most difficult thing you will ever do with your life. No job, no relationship, and no country will require of you as much as the Lord will ask. The stakes are high, but so too are the rewards. To follow Jesus and obey his commands may hurt your reputation, may hurt your relationships, it may hurt respect in all your circles. You may even lose more than that. But as Jesus says two chapters earlier, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? This passage calls us to desire differently. James and John asked to share in Christ's glory, and Jesus asked them, will you share in my suffering also? The gospel invites us to know Christ in all facets, not just the ones we find compelling. And the uncomfortable truth in this passage is that Jesus' words are spoken to his closest followers, his closest friends. Those who know him best seem most ignorant of the cost that's involved. We ought to pay heed to that. Here at Grace Toronto, we pride ourselves as being a church that is intellectual, culturally sophisticated, and apologetic. What if we weren't? This text seems to imply that at some point, all the cultural capital we are experiencing will run out. And when it does, it may not be because we made the wrong mistake or we are somehow less relevant, but maybe because this is what Jesus promised would happen. What if one day the city woke up and decided that it had had enough of us? Would that surprise you? It shouldn't. You need to understand that our church in our present moment is unusual. Christians have always been persecuted in the history of the gospel. It would be strange to millions of believers that we should have a building and we should even be able to worship freely on Sunday. Millions of Christians in the history of the world have never had that privilege. And here's the really interesting part. Suffering and persecution actually seems pretty essential to the advancement of God's kingdom. 
The more pressure that a culture puts on a gospel, the more persecution the church faces, the more it actually seems to grow. In the 1980s, China used to have a Christian population of about 3 million. Since then, the government has imprisoned, tortured, and persecuted the country's believers. It drove the church underground. And yet it's estimated that there are now nearly 100 million Christians in China. Experts say that the country may soon have more Christians than any other place in the world. Why? I think the answer is in this text. In some mysterious way, persecution and suffering, not power and glory, is what promotes the gospel. Through every age, the church shows itself to be strongest and most pure when it's actually under pressure from the culture. And conversely, in every age when the church is in positions of wealth, influence, and power, it actually leads to moral decadence, corruption, and failure. This is the history of the church. Thank the Lord that Jesus denied the request of James and John. He knows what's good for his people. He knows what's good for his church. Men and women, the gospel assures us that glory will surely come to us in its time. We need not desire it. Rather, desire differently. Your present glory is not found in becoming greatness, but in following greatness. Because when we see true greatness in Jesus Christ, when we desire greatness in the way that he defines, we are actually free to serve greatness in the most transformative way. And this is Jesus' third point. to serve true greatness. And we see in this text that Jesus refuses to give James and John their seating. He says, this authority is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Even though Jesus is the Son of God, he will not exercise his authority by nepotism. He will not place his friends in positions of power. He behaves as one who is humbly and strictly in the service of another, God the Father. And of course, the other disciples don't quite understand what's happening. They grow indignant because, well, they think James and John have won something, that they have an additional blessing because they share in the suffering, this cup and baptism, Jesus. And so Jesus again calls them to himself. He says this, You know, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. In this setting, Gentiles were those who weren't Jews, namely the Roman establishment. Their leaders usually had a plethora of other gods. They ruled by exercising power and force. They were cruel, calculating, domineering, and self-indulgent. And Jesus effectively says to his disciples, you are acting like the very people whom you hate. I have not commanded you to be like them. This is not the greatness that I have asked of you. He continues, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. This is what gospel greatness is supposed to look like. We are not to be lording it over each other. We are not to be domineering or fighting amongst ourselves. That is not the gospel way. Just imagine for a moment, how different might the quality of your relationships be like if you and the people in your life were to subscribe from this teaching? Wouldn't you enjoy going to work? What would your relationships look like with your boss, with your colleagues, with those who serve under you? What would your friendships look like? How would your approach to dating be different? What would your marriage look like? What would your kids learn from watching you? 
You see, when we believe and trust in Jesus and his definition of greatness, we are freed more and more to serve true greatness. Jesus, the good, wise, and selfless king, says of himself this, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. All of us in the church, but especially our pastors, our staff, our elders and deacons, are called to be servants in the likeness of Jesus. You are to hold us to that. You are to pray for us in that and to encourage us in that vision. And we are to hold you, to lead you, and to teach you in the very same spirit. The gospel calls us to embody a servant-like attitude in all our conduct with Christians and also with the watching world. It is of utmost importance. Because there are times in the history of the global church that we've forgotten this. When instead of bearing persecution in the spirit of Jesus Christ, we have instead persecuted others. When we didn't love people with a servant-like attitude, but we abused power and authority in the name of gospel greatness. In fact, I know that several of you walked away from the church entirely because this was your experience. You were deeply hurt by people who judged you condemned you and wrongfully cast you out. And I'm sorry that that happened. I believe Jesus weeps over such things. I want you to see from this text that that is not at all the way the church was meant to behave. It's not what the church was meant to look like. Some of you may have heard of groups like Westboro Baptist Church in the United States who shout, picket, and spread hate everywhere. They carry around signs that read God hates gays, Muslims, Jews, and other terrible, terrible things. I remember years ago seeing a post on this group's social media page in their defense where they had the audacity to post a scripture passage from Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. My heart actually hurt when I read that. And yet, curiously, a non-Christian engaging with the online post simply replied, we don't hate you on account of Jesus. We hate you purely on account of yourself. I thought it so fascinating then and even now that even the culture knows when we represent Jesus and when we look nothing like him. The gospel calls us to servant-like attitude. It calls us to consider true greatness, to follow him and to serve him with our lives. Because here's the crux of the gospel, my friends. Greatness came and dwelt among us. Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death does not come about because he mixed with the wrong crowd or that he somehow made some poor choices. His death has been ordained by God with eternal purpose. It is to redeem many. Scholars think that the cup that Jesus is pointing to in verse 38 is a reference to the Old Testament prophets. You see, in the Old Testament literature, there's a cup. There's a cup that represents the full measure of God's judgment that awaits sinners. Sinners like you and me who have rejected the true greatness of God and instead have strived for a greatness of our own. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23 confirms this. He says this of such people, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And look, rather than allow this cup of God's eternal wrath and suffering to be poured out on us, Jesus came to drink it down to its dregs. He says to his disciples, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. 
Do you see? This is what true greatness does. Like a servant, Jesus will allow others to lord it over him. Lesser men will be allowed to spit on him, to mock him, to condemn him and kill him. And in his persecution, he will take upon himself God's righteous judgment against our sin. The greatest one who ever lived will become a slave of all. But hear what these same scriptures say about the servant from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Men and women, we have before us greatness embodied in Jesus. We have a servant king. And when you understand the depth of service that has been done on your behalf, your act of service actually feels pretty reasonable. And dare I say, even necessary. How could you not be delighted to serve the very greatness that ransomed you? The gospel's call to service is a call to become as your master and Lord. What could be better than that? Well, what can we say about application? What are we supposed to make of these things? Well, I think this text calls us to do two things. To serve the Lord and share the cup. Serve the Lord first, not your own interests. If you're here and you're not yet a believer, can I invite you into the service of Jesus Christ? All of us, I think, will undoubtedly find ourselves serving something or the other, and it will not satisfy in the way that Jesus will. The gospel calls you to come face to face with true greatness. And as you do, you will find yourself more and more reflecting a greater greatness than I think you've ever known in your life. I'd ask you to consider that. For the Christian here, you're probably sitting here asking, well, how practically am I supposed to be a servant? What should I do? Well, I'm not going to tell you because this text doesn't tell you. Being a servant in this passage is not about behavior and what you should do, but about perspective and how you should think. What are the things you find yourself doing already, routinely? Who are the people you interact with, work with, live beside? How might you embody a servant-like attitude in each of your circles? How might we together be a servant church? Think about it. Second, share the cup. If you believe and trust in Jesus, the cup of God's wrath is removed from you. Praise God. But there is a cup of suffering for all believers. Paul in Philippians 1 writes this, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. I don't know where the Lord will lead you. I don't know what you or our church may be called to endure, but this text calls us to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be prayerful as we seek to serve the city. Friends, you've been saved because of the persecution of Jesus Christ. You are saved because a persecuted church considered it better to serve the truth and be killed than for millions of people to perish in darkness. Men and women have literally died so that you might hear the gospel and be called to believe. Men and women are still dying even now so that others can do the same. Honor these saints with your life. Never mind what people say of you. Your Lord and your master was mocked also. Never mind where you sit. Your king left his throne for you. Never mind even your life. You will rise to eternal, imperishable glory with your Savior. 
Desire true greatness. Share the cup. Serve the Lord. Whatever it is the Lord calls you to do, go be truly great. For your king has gone to serve you in death. Go now and serve him with your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the servant king who came to drink the cup of God's wrath. We praise you and thank you for this great news. We ask that you'd help us to share not just in your glory, but also in your suffering, that we would drink this cup and we would share in your baptism also. Make us a church that desires this. Make us a church that is empowered by your spirit. We pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, well, we have a couple minutes for Q&A. See if there's any questions. What are some examples of suffering as a Christian here in the West? That is a great question. I didn't want to make the sermon particularly about persecution because I think it's implied here, but not necessarily explicit. Um, I know a CEO, actually, who was, uh, he had a Bible on his desk, and uh, it was a trigger to women in his, in his workplace. And he was actually asked in front of all his staff to publicly apologize for having this Bible. on his desk, on his personal desk. That's one example. I know um, even among, among my youth, um, there's a, a youth who is actually shunned because she had a certain uh, view of marriage and what that meant. And the neighborhood kids weren't very happy about that. These are uh, certain examples that aren't quite like what you might expect, but it is happening. I don't know that it's quite to the same degree as in other parts of the world, and I don't wish that. Um, but this text does call us to be watchful and to be prayerful. Thanks for that. Uh, how do we stay spiritually awake and always be reminded that there's a cost in following Christ? How do we stay real while we are living in this comfortable, saturated culture? That's a great question. Uh, we're still figuring that out. Um, I think be informed. That would be a really great way to do that. Uh, read the voice of the martyrs. Uh, look, read stories of other believers and, and people around the world, people who uh, would, would cram uh, literally, uh, literally 100 people into the size of your living room, I would expect, and to listen to the gospel being preached for eight hours at a time in complete darkness so that they won't be found out by the government. Read their stories. Uh, learn about what life looks like elsewhere. Uh, I think that would be a great way to do it. Uh, pray for the persecuted church. do that. Our brothers and sisters are are dying and suffering elsewhere. Jesus says of the body, when when one part weeps, we all weep, and when one part rejoices, we all rejoice together. I think there's a real call in that uh, to to know what's happening in the rest of the world. So do be informed. I think that's a a good way forward. Um, Someone asks here, is it judging to condemn Westboro Baptist Church? That's a great question. I, I apologize if that appeared like it was judgment, but Their actions to me don't seem like a church that represents Jesus Christ. Jesus did not advocate for people to go out and spread hate. Jesus advocated for people to stand for the truth. For me, when I look at different people in different churches, I ask myself, what do they stand for, not what they stand against? Do they stand for the gospel? That's what I care about. Um, That's my best guess of that, but... Do reach out if you still have questions about that. I think that's it for Q&A. And thank you for your time. Uh, May you be blessed. Amen.